Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Jennifer Ecclestone with GM, where she handles social media and executive communications for advanced technology and product development. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, if you hear some background noise, it's because we are at the PRSA International Conference here on the trade show floor and people are sort of hustling and bustling around us. But uh, Jennifer's here to uh, present. What do you present? Uh, tomorrow, I am going to be presenting on GM's use of grassroots communications, um, which was kind of a regional effort in the United States because of the bankruptcy process that we went through and realized that our image was not as highly thought of as we originally may have believed across the country. So um, it's just kind of the story of what you do when you have very little money and you have a reputation that you need to improve and what we did um, on our end to do that and how successful it's been. And just to recap, uh, for anyone who's been living under a rock, missed it, um, you guys basically were teetering on bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. and uh, the U.S. government bailed you out, right? Correct. How much did they give you? Um, I believe it was billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer money, um, which, because of the credit crisis, unfortunately did not... uh, work well for us because people still weren't able to buy cars at the time so we ended up having to go into chapter 11 bankruptcy following that in um, July of 2009 so following that we had a lot of uh, damage to repair Uh, the business model changed our company changed Um, through that process however we came through with a clean balance sheet um, very quickly I might add Uh, we came out of it in about three months which is pretty much unheard of in those kind of things especially with a global company like ours and um, though we are still partially um, funded through the US government um, that's on their end it's not ours we would love to be free of their control but (laughs) since they are the owners we can't do much on our end to change that until they're ready to give up that portion of us that they own so what we've done from our perspective to try and change the image of the brand and the company was delve into grassroots communications because generally speaking that's when you kind of don't have a whole lot of resources which we certainly didn't at the time of the bankruptcy and we certainly couldn't look like we were spending any money because we didn't have any so what do you do when you sell maybe the second highest cost item that a person will buy in their lifetime aside from a house um, and try to sell that to people who don't really care for your company and don't really care for the brands that you support. And that's the story that I'm telling tomorrow. Right. Well, just, I mean, you know, I remember uh, at one point the heads Mm -hmm. of the automakers testified in Congress. Correct. And they all flew private jets there. Well, that was based on a security issue. Um, That's always been what Fortune 50 and Fortune 500 companies do when you have executives that high up that are already receiving a lot of threats 
even in good times, they do receive those kind of things. That was a security measure for us, um, albeit maybe it was not the best image to uphold at that point in time, and we certainly learned a huge lesson from that moving forward, and they did not do that anymore. Um, we don't even have corporate jets that we use anymore. So um, that was a learning moment for us, too. I think that whole process was a learning moment for the company and for the rest of the world, because nobody had really ever been in that position in that large of the public eye. So um, I think that particular piece of it was maybe blown out of proportion by the media because it was a security measure. And if you look at any other Fortune 50 or Fortune 500 company, they're taking those measures when they have their chief executives flying just because of the security measures you have to take. Right. Um, is this, First of all, is the same management in place no. at the company? No. The management has changed actually a few times from there. We now have um, Dan Ackerson is our CEO and he actually is from the uh, communication space initially and we now have our... Telecommunications? Yes. Uh -huh. And our VP of communications is Selim Bingle who used to be a um, very large leader over at Fleischmann Hillard Communications and Jolie Wanick came from us. Our CMO came from um, Nissan motor company and um, we now have Mary Barra who is over product development she has not served in that role previously she's got 27 years of experience as an engineer um, a business degree from Stanford and she's been with GM for 31 years but had not been in that type of leadership role before um, we also have Mark Royce who does have a history with GM also he's the VP of North America but he was also just newly pushed into that position in the last year and how long have you been at GM I've been at GM for about three and a half years so you were there through the through I the whole was, thing. Yes. Did you start just before? Well, buddy. Uh, yeah, I started. Walk in, us through the timing because sure. I, I don't remember it all. Yep, yep. I was an intern in 2007 during while well, I was still in uh, University of Michigan State or Michigan State University for college, and um, experienced some of the cutbacks. I could already tell that the company was cutting back on some of their communications budgets, and then started full time in the summer of uh, 2008. And it was shortly after GM Centennial, um, which is ironic because we just celebrated Chevy, we're celebrating Chevy Centennial right now, um, was when we really took a hit. And it was shortly after that that we were starting to go through the hearing process. And it was in December of that year that we received part of the government bailout. So uh, I want to talk about the communications because that's what I'm primarily interested in. Sure. I'm interested in you telling us what you learned about mm -hmm. having to communicate through this process. And I don't want you to think that I'm beating you up, that I blame <laughs> you for any of these things sure. that have happened. But I mean, I do have questions. Absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. So here's sort of the obvious question that I've always had, that mm -hmm. I've always wanted to ask. Maybe you don't even have an answer, but I would be a putz if I didn't ask it, okay? <laughs> So I remember prior to the demise mm -hmm. of all these U.S. automakers, um, the Prius yes. showed up and gas prices got expensive. And at that time, I didn't see any of the automakers rush to make hybrids. Um, what I saw on the, you know, advertisements on during the ball game mm -hmm. were, you know, advertisements for the GM trucks. And then there was even a promotion where if you bought a truck, you got a deal. They would pay for the gas for a while. And to me, it just seems so odd. I mean, why wouldn't 
if you're a manufacturer of automobiles, at least diversify your strategy. Maybe you don't maybe you don't throw the trucks away completely because they're profitable, but maybe you just make one little hybrid, you know, to compete with Prius, just something. Because gas prices are expensive. It's obviously unsustainable. I mean, and then I start, you know, cocking up these uh, con- uh, these conspiracy theories that, oh, my God, the reason they're doing it is they're in cahoots with the uh, oil guys and they want us to use the oil. So this is all just a ploy to sell more oil and sell more big cars. I mean, so so you're on the inside of this thing. Sure. I know you're not in the executive suite right. when they're talking about what they're going to do, but you got more insight than I do. Absolutely. Enlighten me. What am I missing? Well, um, first and foremost, vehicles don't just happen overnight. Um, we have the 2011 Volt, which we're now in our second year of making it. The 2012 Volt has come out. We've actually been testing that vehicle for well over 10 years, and we've had that in the process of being built since then. Um, it is a uh, electric extended range vehicle, so you can plug it in. You get 35 to 50 miles worth of battery range for that particular vehicle, and it's a Chevrolet model. Um, and then beyond that, you actually do have the option so that you don't have any um, range anxiety with your battery. It'll go back to using a um, turbo engine that's actually the same engine that's in our Chevy Cruze, which has the best mileage right which now. Which is a gas engine. Correct, but it starts off with a battery, and it runs on so electricity. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid, but unlike the Prius, instead of using both, intermittently, you're all electric. You're all electric, and it's just a backup gas um, combustible engine that's basically recharging the battery as you're driving. So we did have those in the process. We actually took a different route than some of the other manufacturers did because, um, as you mentioned, trucks are profitable. People want larger vehicles, and it is only in, really, you'll notice, in times of high pressure with fuel being really, really expensive, that you'll see a drop in the sales of larger vehicles. That's not to say that we haven't done our part in doing smaller vehicles, but I, it is interesting to see, it, we're always, all of the automakers are the bad guys for making trucks and SUVs and Suburbans, but people who have large families, people who have businesses that need those, we can never stop manufacturing vehicles like that. What we can do is bring new technologies such as fuel cell technology using um, hydrogen in our vehicles, and we've got um, natural gas vans that we have now so that they're not using a drop of gasoline. Um, We do those a lot in different fleets for various companies. Uh, We just donated one to the Detroit Science Center in Michigan. Um, We also had done the two-mode hybrid system, and that was in our Silverados, that's in our Tahoe. We had done that in a couple of different platforms. So we were trying, and we've had those hybrids for three or four years now. So um, that was well before we went into bankruptcy. The plans for the Volt were well before we went into bankruptcy. And I think it was a matter of, it takes, you know, five years for a vehicle to come from kind of a thought process. Five to seven years, generally speaking. The Volt, we actually took... The plans from when we launched it at an auto show in 2007 to when we were making it was only a three-year process. So we did see the need and increase the ramp-up of that product because it was what the consumers wanted. We tried EVs back in the 80s. No one wanted it. It wasn't successful. There was not a marketplace for it. People weren't as educated. Now they are, and now there is a marketplace for it. So it all sounds reasonable to me, but I'll tell you, let me push back just a little. Sure. I remember reading an article in Wired magazine maybe 18 months ago. I don't remember exactly. And it was a profile on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had figured out a way 
to ramp up production of armored vehicles so that they could get them to the boys in Iraq and protect them quicker than usual. And they scrapped all sorts of other long-range plans they had for manufacturing aviation and other equipment. And somehow they circumvented the process and did it quicker. What used to take 10 years took 18 months. I'm pulling these numbers out of thin air because I don't remember exactly. Okay. If I can, I'll find a link to the article and put it in the show notes for this podcast, okay? I'll try to do that. Uh, but it, it just seems to me like in, if when things get bad and people get motivated, you should be able to do it quicker. And five years just seems like too long for a company that's teetering in bankruptcy to figure out a solution. Well, I think that's being a little bit misconstrued because I think we already had the plans in process during the bankruptcy. So we have the Chevrolet Cruze now, which actually out of the hybrid category. Chevrolet Cruze. Correct. And that's also a hybrid? No. That vehicle is actually a um, normal sedan. It's um, four-door kind of, yep, sedan. Yep. And it actually gets the Cruise Eco, which has um, light hybrid technologies, it doesn't have the full-blown or hybrid-like engine, but it's okay. got other formats of the design of the vehicle. Kind of the front end and the back end were changed in the fascias a little bit to make it more aerodynamic. That actually gets 42 miles per gallon, which outside of the hybrid and diesels in that segment is the best-rated fuel economy of the segment, and that was released last year. So coming out of the bankruptcy, we had that one on the dock. We had a ton of products that were coming out. They were just I'd say nine to ten months a little bit outside of the window that would have been perfect for us to succeed. Now, that being said, we learned a huge lesson going through the process. It was not just the vehicles that we were selling. It was the fact that nobody could get the funding they needed to get car loans. Um, we ourselves could not get loans from the banks because they were experiencing the same thing we were. So there was a lot of different issues at the time of the bankruptcy. And again, there are notable differences in the company. There was issues at the time. The management did need to change. Things did need to move faster. We had, you know, it, we went from eight brands to four as far as vehicles went. So things do happen a lot more quickly now. I know working in our advanced tech field, we are constantly reevaluating programs that we're doing. And does it make sense for us to continue with the two-mode hybrid? Maybe it doesn't. Does it make sense to continue with the fuel cell technology? But you still have to have the infrastructure for a lot of these types of things. And I think a lot of consumers forget about that. They ask for the electric vehicles. They're asking for diesels. They're asking for... Uh, hydrogen fuel cells. Well, if you don't have the fueling stations for hydrogen fuel cells, or if you don't have plug-in stations for your vehicles, or batteries that have a faster charging rate of than 8 to 10 hours, like the Nissan LEAF does, then you don't have the infrastructure necessary to be a successful vehicle program. Um, you know, we invest thousands or millions of dollars in our technologies and the development of those. But again, it's the wide-based consumer that you're still having to realize that is who you're going after. But you are always developing technologies for the future. It just can't happen as quickly as reformatting an ink of a pen or changing the type of juice you put in a box. I mean, these things do take time and it takes a lot of testing because we want to put out quality and safe vehicles. And in order to do that, you have to have the time to test them. So it's not to say that we weren't already going the path that we are right now. I think it was just certainly pushed with a lot more urgency. And I think now I've definitely seen a change in the company and I've definitely seen 
how our leadership tackles each one of these. And if you don't come from an engineering perspective and design perspective, if you don't come to the table with a full reason why this is going to work in the marketplace, the program gets scrapped. So I, I have seen the changes, and unfortunately, we can't change what happened in the past. All we can say is, moving forward, GM is a different company. We are interested in being the leader in technology and advanced development and having the best vehicle connectivity out there so that you can personalize your vehicle. You can have the, your own phone that you put in there that can be your connection to the world. That's where GM as a company is going. So, Let's talk for a minute about mileage standards, because that's something that's covered in the press a lot. Okay. You see, uh, you know, uh, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration is, uh, you know, stumping for higher mileage efficient fuel efficiency standards. And then the way, at least I see it portrayed in the press, is that the automakers are fighting higher mileage efficiency standards. Walk me through what's really going on there. Is that the case? I mean, are they fighting it because it'll just be more expensive to put systems into place to be more efficient? Because you hear that apparently the technology's out there to build a 50-mile-a-gallon efficiency car, but nobody's doing it. And let me just give you an example of this, okay? My uncle lives in uh, Nevada. He bought a smart car, two-cylinder smart car. Um, He was one of the first ones to get it. He took it to the DMV to get it smogged, and no one could smog it because no one had the ability to smog it. So he had to return the car and couldn't drive the car in Nevada because there was no way for him to get it officially smogged and get registration. And that just seems preposterous, right? It also seems preposterous that if mileage, if the technology exists to get good mileage, why wouldn't automakers support higher econ- higher fuel efficiency standards? Well, I don't think um, there's two issues. Once again, that's back to the infrastructure issue, which is you have to train people to be able to deal with all of these new technologies. You've got to figure out what those EPA standards mean as far as testing for smog and testing for all of those things with these new technologies. So again, that's the issue is we may have the technologies, but the marketplace isn't ready. So the people aren't change, trained um, as far as, you know, with our volts, we had to do a whole another set of tests and training for first responders. If you've got a huge lithium-ion battery in the center of your vehicle and you get into an accident, you can't very well cut right through that vehicle and keep the person inside safe. There was a whole set of training that has to be done surrounding these new technologies. So that's part of it. And I think the other thing is new technology is expensive. If it's not mass-produced yet, and even if you do have the ability to make it, the costs of it are not going to be what the consumer is willing to pay. So there's a there is a constant struggle and I can't speak from a political standpoint because I don't sit in the political office and I don't know all of the things that they're discussing in those different meetings. Um, what I can say is that it's not usually the consumer says they want the new technology. They say they want to meet the cafe standards which are, you know, years away from now. Yes, the technology is there, but it's not feasible to get there right now because consumers aren't willing to pay for the technology. It's not mass-produced. It's not in a point where it's mature enough in its development for it to be affordable for the general consumer. So I think as you see these technologies come more about and there's more suppliers that are able to do things in a cheaper and more consumer-friendly way, 
then you will see all of these things being met. And I and I think, you know, we're very early in this process. Those standards were only met, you know, they were only developed two years ago. And I think, yes, they are getting more and more stringent, but I think there's more technologies that are coming out every day and more companies investing in those type of technologies. But if the general consumer, even though they're saying they want it and they're not willing to spend the money on it, that's going to be where the problem lies. Final question. Yep. So... You've lived, I mean, as a professional, you've lived through a, a really challenging time because, you know, you had the taxpayer bailout. Um, you know, you've got people like me who, you know, don't know as much as you do about the automotive industry. Sure. And so when you explain me these responses, they're, they're pretty good. And I, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about it. Okay. Um, but uh, what I'd be curious to know is as a communications professional. Sure. What lessons have you learned from your experience that others could learn from and others could apply to their work outside of the automotive sector? Sure. I think when you're dealing with um, very unhappy people and people who are unwillingly supporting your company, you have nothing left to do but tell them your story. So I think, and that's really what I'm speaking about here at the conference this week, is grassroots communication is what happens when you've reached rock bottom and you've got nowhere to go but up, hopefully. You need to start telling your story. You need to get people into your products. You can't, we can't certainly as auto manufacturers just provide free samples. We're not selling coffee. We're not selling, you know, pastries. It's not easy for us to just donate that kind of thing. But what we can do is show up to your family barbecue or show up to a military base and let people do a ride and drive experience and speak to our engineers and have people who work for the company that are bringing these new ideas to your backyard. So while my key state at the time was in Florida, Detroit and Florida are very far away. People are dealing with very different issues in both of those places and people didn't care about the auto industry. But we had to make them care. We had to make them realize why the domestic manufacturers were important, that we actually did have products they wanted to buy. Because there is a huge misconception about the vehicles GM currently sells. And I think people are thinking of us from the 80s and 90s where we did have quality issues and admittedly so. I think that so. Zeppelin music on the Caddy <laughs> commercials did wonders for you guys. Yeah. So, you know, it's a huge job, but that's what we do every day in public relations is you work on making the brands the best image possible. And we had a heck of a project in front of us with this whole situation. And I think, um, relatively speaking, we've done a very good job coming out of the bankruptcy to improve the image, to really showcase to the U.S. and to the globe, really, why it was worthwhile to keep us around, what we're doing in the future, and how we're investing in communities on a daily basis with our dealerships and also just creating products that the consumer really does want to be a in and driving and be proud to be a part of. Can we find you on Twitter? Absolutely. At Jen Ecclestone, that's J-E-N-E-C-C L-E-S-T-O-N-E and I actually have no relation to the Formula One racers. (laughs) Jennifer Ecclestone with GM uh, who handles social media and executive communications for advanced technology and product development. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. 
On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.